folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today, as you've no doubt guessed from the audio, we'll be speaking with a guest. The last couple months have seen turbulent times come to Syracuse University in upstate New York. A series of racist graffiti and interpersonal incidents have provided the spark for students to protest against what they feel is poor handling of racial issues by school administration. Well, just so turns out that one of our listeners is a student currently attending Syracuse, and we are happy to have him on today to discuss what exactly is happening there. That's right. And so our guest today, Adam, would actually be the same listener who requested and got us to do the now legendary, legendary. Sense of Theory Christmas episode last year. So this is exactly the kind of thing that we wanted to create with the Sense of Theory podcast. And I think we're both super stoked to have a listener on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Adam hit us up and, you know, he said, hey, I'm going to Syracuse. I've got something to add to the conversation. And we are more than happy to, to bring him on because this show, uh, as we've said before, is about you guys as much as it is us. We're just two people trying to figure out these things with you, you know. So uh, super excited that we were able to do this today. Um, so without further ado, uh, let me introduce Adam. Adam is currently in his final year of law school at Syracuse University. Uh, he's been focusing his studies on regulatory compliance and corporate governance. Adam received his bachelor's and master's degree in political science and has presented his work in the field of political science at over 12 different research conferences around the country. He's received numerous awards for his community leadership and academic achievements. So wait, what, uh, what you're saying is that Adam is probably more qualified to do the show than we are. He, he absolutely is. <laughs> uh, in addition to his academic pursuits, Adam is also highly active in his community, both domestic and abroad. Uh, in Syracuse, he does work with the United Way, the Salvation Army, a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And he also works with a local nonprofit called Child Care Solutions, an organization that focuses on providing parents with high quality child care options through a referral service of vetted child care providers. He also sits on the board of directors for Inquileco. But wait, there's more. Based in Grahamstown, South Africa, uh, this organization is dedicated to providing supplemental educational enrichment opportunities in response to the poor educational infrastructure in rural South Africa. Adam, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And I couldn't be more glad to be here with you guys today. Well, I thank you for coming on the show. And I got to say right out the gate, um, I did my due diligence. Uh, I looked you up and I am incredibly Im- impressed that, uh, Inkuleko, is that, a, did I say it right? Yes. Yep. Um, does awesome work, man. On what, $30,000 a year, you guys get education for like 40, 40 impoverished children across right, the yeah. pond? Right. And I mean, we're, we're very good at being able to stretch the amount of funds that we get. I mean, we can always use more as any nonprofit, but, you know, we're really able to find ways to enrich the lives of a lot of these young people who really started off in a really unfortunate situation that they just were essentially born into a place that just doesn't afford them great opportunities to excel um, with the educational opportunities that are present in the country. So if our listeners actually want to get involved and give you a helping hand, um, where can they do that? Is there somewhere they can make a donation? Yes, I'm actually um, at, at our website, inkuleku.org. Um, they are more than happy to make a, um, a taxable donation. Um, they can also choose to join our group called um, Friends of Inkuleku, which 
allows people who want to be volunteers or who want to give something to the organization, maybe even if they can't financially, to get involved with the program and do whatever they can to support the amazing work that we do in the country. I have to say it is amazing work. And, guys, I'm going to spell that out for you. That's I-N-K-U-E-L-E-K-O dot org. Um, Go check them out and at least see what they're doing. See if you can uh, spare a few dollars in support. They could surely use it. Yeah, and we'll we'll certainly have links uh, to both those organizations, uh, you know, in the show notes of the episode. So definitely check that out uh, after you listen to the episode or while you're listening to the episode, whichever. Um, So, Adam, all right. (laughs) <laughs> There's been a healthy amount of news coverage on the Syracuse situation, um, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that some of our listeners may have only heard about it in passing or seen a headline. I know that was certainly where I was at before you know mm-hmm. we spoke and we started putting together this episode. So I, I was wondering if you can walk us through the chain of events uh, here recently, starting with the first instance of racist graffiti on November the 7th. Okay, of course, sure. And as you said, I mean, the the first incident happened on November 7th. Um, it was actually found on two floors of a residence hall, uh, the fourth and sixth floor. And really, the main sticking point with how this kind of snowballed and got the national attention that it did was that it, the university didn't actually send out formal communications about the November 11th event or the November 7th event until November 11th. And so initially, students felt that that lapse of four days between when the actual graffiti was discovered up until it was actually disseminated with the entire university community was a bit too long for some students liking. And do you know what exactly that, that racist graffiti said? Did they, did they ever share that? I wasn't able to find out much information uh, in news reports. I, I found some reports that said um, there was anti-Asian uh, sentiments written on sticky notes. Um, other people said like anti-black sentiments. Uh, I, you know, I, I couldn't find any hard and fast details. Was the university forthcoming uh, as a student? Do you know exactly what was written? No, I really don't. And even when we got that email on the 11th, there really weren't any finite details about explicitly what was said. And I don't really know if that's more maybe from a PR standpoint, they don't want to give extra credence to saying what those statements were given oh, that sure. they were you know given that they were written in a way that was at least in some instance done to entice some type of visceral response which is definitely what ensued after the graffiti was discovered right i think that kind of thing is kind of what we what we're asking on the sense and theory podcast of the news when they cover you know shooters and stuff like right. you don't want to spread that you don't want to spread the message it's just you know you got copycats and and people who who buy into it it's right. not necessarily a great idea um so i do i do kind of have a concern though in that um i as a as someone who who's trying to make a judgment about the situation i'd like to know what was said you know i mean i'd like to know um, but you know, I think as we'll see, as this case strings, like we don't know a whole lot about a lot of this stuff. So it makes it kind of hard. Um, I noticed that the, the sit in for, so that, you know, the students kind of started a movement. I think it was a, was a hashtag not again SU. 
and right. began a sit-in, but it actually began um, as the day after the second graffiti piece was found. So it, it had me wondering, were there any incidents like earlier this year and years prior that had Syracuse students kind of prime for that sort of response? Because not to make light, you know, of the graffiti, but two instances of graffiti and we have – you know, uh, again, we have this like uh, this huge sit-in, and it's hitting national news and everything. That's that's awfully quick. It it would seem to me. So, were there other things that kind of led us up to this point? Well, I mean, from from my knowledge, um, I was actually lat the lat the first time I was on campus was between uh, 2011 and 2012 when I did my master's degree, and then following that, you know, I was still in Syracuse, and I've kind of bounced around a little bit, but. From what I remember, back in 2014, there wasn't actually a racially charged incident, but there was actually an 18-day sit-in by students because they felt as if the administration wasn't doing enough to adequately support multicultural affairs. Uh, specifically, there was a program that the university had participated in, which would go to different communities across the United States to identify students of color who might be a good fit for the Syracuse community. It was the administration's decision to kind of scale back on that and some other multicultural initiatives, which kind of generated this 18-day sit-in by students who felt that the administration of the university was not doing enough to really support the spearheading of multicultural affairs. I see. And then I think there were also uh, – there was an incident with a, uh, a video taken in the basement of a frat a couple years ago, or was yeah. it last year? Yeah, right. Was that, yeah, it was, um, it was actually last year, and that – I think that was perhaps probably the powder keg that may have kind of been the foundation for how this all exploded so quickly. I mean, even in that event – I mean, and of course, the video was widely available for people to see, but it, it, was, a, it was an instance that really – stoked a lot of reaction because instead of someone just saying someone said this or someone said that, you know, there was actually footage of the behavior which allowed people to get a first person view into what was done and said, which allowed them to really formulate an opinion about it. And especially for some alumni who have never been very fond of how they believe their experiences were at Syracuse, it really sparked more awareness about how some of this activity may be done on campus. Now, of course, for the fraternity, their response more or less was that, look, this is satire. You know, this is something that we do often, you know, and I think the best part, it was private. So, I mean, somehow the, you know, the privateness of the recording should somehow mitigate and that's, any type of yeah, exactly that's crazy. So, let me let me be clear for our listeners who who don't know about the video. It will be in the show notes, so go go check it out and watch it for yourselves. Um, absolutely flabbergasting. It's like a, a frat ceremony or whatever, um, and they make the pledges say, uh, "I promise to always hold hate in my heart for n words and spicks and uh, and and what chinks or something," hmm. and. I think there's even a black guy standing behind him, and they're all just laughing and having a having a good time. You do hear some groans and some o's. He makes a Holocaust joke at at some point, like saying "get in the showers," um, and at that point, you definitely hear some audible groans. But this is this is uh, uh, school sponsored activity, right? As a fraternity, um, or at least uh, you know hand in hand with the school, um, and and I was just kind of flabbergasted. I was like, wait, it's. 20, you know, what was it, 2018, it's 2019, 
and there's a frat participating in this kind of behavior, um, I think at the very least the frat frat should have been disbarred, and everyone who was present, um, you know, should have should have at least been suspended or something. You know, I don't know, man. Uh, but I was pretty flabbergasted by that video. Right. And I, I can actually comment on some of the fallout that happened after that. Um, the fraternity actually it was suspended for those activities. Also, I believe 18 of the students who were identified in the video uh, did face disciplinary action and subsequent suspension, which was actually at the tail end of the school year around this time last year. And of course, that led to a lawsuit by an anonymous number of students against the university for what they claimed to be um, unfair practices, really using this incident to kind of paint them in a negative light without actually hearing their side of it. And while at the same time not affording them the proper process they should have been afforded throughout the university judicial conduct process. Any idea how that lawsuit panned? I know. I actually tried to find information recently, and it, I know it seems to be more or less kind of sitting idle, which really isn't surprising for these things. I mean, I know that a typical tactic for universities when they when they face this type of exposure is to kind of let it drag out as long as right. possible, then potentially try to reach some type of settlement just so that the university can kind of do what it can from a PR standpoint to control the situation and to make sure it doesn't continue to pop its head up in either regional or national headlines. I'd say if that was going on, then, then this powder keg, you know, re-exploded and, and now they're, you know, all their efforts yeah. are for not because they're back in the spotlight yet again. Um, but wait, there's more. The frat video, uh, wasn't the only thing. Um, there was a fight too, right? A video of a fight. Um, I don't know. There was assault on a student at a house party and, uh, Someone showed up, called someone inwards, started swinging fists, got hauled off. Um, do you know anything about that? Yeah, and that actually it, it actually happened um, in a house that was off campus that students were having a party in. And the the initial the initial fight started when a student of color was outside on the porch. They claimed that. Four white individuals, including what they believe to be one white woman, came up to him and started confronting him. As you said, started calling him derogatory racial terms. That eventually led to a fight. And there was also claims that the woman actually pulled a gun on one of the students and hit one student with it and then threatened to shoot another one, which at that point was when we start. We there was some type of intervention by the police to defuse the situation. But they, it, that did escalate a bit quickly. Would yeah. that be would that be another instance in, in which students felt like the university uh, should have notified? I mean, were students notified about that incident or, or, or are you aware? Yeah, they, they were actually we were all notified by an email about it. And typically, whenever something happens that impacts the entire university, there's generally a campus wide email that goes out to students to kind of update them. For example, when, when there's been a robbery or burglary or something in the, in the community, even if it's not on campus, if it's in a area that's highly populated by university students, the Department of Public Safety will typically send out some type of notification just so that students can be vigilant about being more cautious in areas that might be prone to more violence or crime, given that there is a high density of students in those specific areas. 
I see. So we also have to actually bounce over to Madrid, Spain, uh, for part of this story. Uh, in a New York Times article and a few other places, a series of incidents involving professors and students uh, apparently saying the N-word at a Syracuse satellite campus that's in Madrid, Spain, um, have also been cited by the, the protesting students as, you know, among their grievances. Um, and, and I wondered, like, being there on the ground, is it is it common for students like you know every day to see all of these things as being linked? Is it a situation where the protesters said you know all of this is 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 a part of the same uh, institutional rot at Syracuse, or is it something where the graffiti and and you know accompanying incidents there actually at Syracuse itself have been the main driver um, of it? Well, I think from a student perspective, there, at least to my knowledge, there really hasn't been a sentiment that this was something that's widely known. I mean, this is something I kind of had heard in passing, but it wasn't something that was widely publicized. And I think the reason being was that because if you really look at some of the other reports and kind of compartmentalize all of them to kind of really get the true story out, it was more a lot of the incidents occurred in academic environments that were controlled. For example, one instance was where a student was reading some type of literature and the N-word was mentioned and they said it out loud in class. Another instance was where there was a discussion that was happening and someone was recalling a situation where they heard someone else say the word and they said it. And so more or less, it felt like that incident, while it kind of appeared, at least on face, could appear to be just another instance of racially motivated behavior that is being allowed by the university. This situation really doesn't dovetail with everything that's happening because really all of the instances that were identified were done in controlled violence. And at least to my knowledge, none were actually done with malicious intent to use that word in the way it's been used. And I wonder, does that, does that matter? I mean, as, as a white guy, I, you know, that I, I ask myself like that, that all the time. If we are talking about the N-word, is it okay for me to say the N-word? And, and me, the way I see it is if there are people out there who have voiced that they will be offended by my use of a word, I can, I can bear you, you know, a minimum of respect by respecting that. The word itself is not a big enough deal for me to cross that line, but do you, you're, you're a black guy, right? Yes. Do you do you have a problem with like a professor reading Huck Finn and saying the N word? You know, I really don't. And I actually had a professor back in college who was very profoundly um, black, you know, very profoundly pro black, pro African American. And he actually taught a course in history that dealt heavily with pre Civil War United States. So I mean, essentially, the course was really a survey of a lot of racist sentiment in the United States prior to the Civil War. And he would openly use the word because he felt as if the if we're going to, for example, use this word in rap videos and all these different things, meaning that we kind of make it this double standard whereby it's okay for one black person to say it to another person. But the second someone else says it, then it becomes an issue. And it kind of seems, at least from my standpoint, there needs to be some type of general consensus, either we don't say the word period because it's a word that is drenched in historiocracy of hatred and mm. violence, or we just allow it. And I mean, that's, I think, really has to be 
a personal choice for the individual. But I feel as if the problem is this blatant double standard that's typically applied. I mean, me personally, I won't use it in jest because I don't believe that you can simply take a word that actual development was used to identify somebody as essentially less of a person or in better terms, three fifths of the person and use it in a way that is joking or chiding. It's just something that I do not particularly take part in because I just don't feel as if that's a word that should try to essentially be sanitized to use in mocking undertones or different types of, uh, of artistic expression. Yeah, I think I get that. Yeah. And, well, and I think, I think what's interesting though is, is, is when you talk, when we talk about the N word and we talk about, uh, you know, the context in which, you know, it's, it's okay or not okay to say it. I think that this Madrid situation, um, really illustrates some of the pitfalls that we set ourselves up for. Uh, you know, for instance, it was my understanding that one of the incidents was a professor who lived in Madrid, uh, attempting to explain the cultural difference and linguistic, uh, difference, uh, between the word negro in, in Spanish. And so, I mean, like, and, and for that to be a complaint, it's like, the, here's two cultures, like, trying to come together and, and, you know, talk things out and explain their differences and everything. And then to turn around and be like, well, no, it's just racism. Like, isn't and you that shortchanging that this, culture? Yeah, you, you loop know the I mean? guy into this frat video, you know, these hateful yeah. frat dudes and, the, and racist graffiti to pull him in is this maybe a little unfair. Yeah, yeah, no, I thought so. So. Um, so as the not again SU movement was going, uh, uh, you know, full swing and the, and the sit-in was going, there were still further incidents. There were, uh, uh, swastikas that were found in snowbanks. Uh, and that's the thing is like, it, it would appear that, you know, whoever the person is, like, it's, it's not one group. I mean, there's been anti-Semitic stuff, anti-Asian stuff, anti-black stuff, uh, you right. name it. That could um, all be the same group, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, they're, they're, Absolutely, you know, going at everyone. Uh, but then somewhere along the way, there's, there's this, uh, quote unquote hateful email, uh, that the university announced that it was investigating. I think it was on the 16th of November. Are you, uh, can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, definitely. And on November 16th, there were actually, there were actually a couple things that happened. The first one being that, that email that was sent, it was actually sent to, members of the student government who were high up in government. Um, they were sent just messages essentially saying that everything that was happening on campus was great in relation to these incidents and also that they wanted to spread more of this. And I mean, and it came from some type of fictitious account, which really couldn't be traced. And it just seemed more or less that to maybe connect it to the people who have done this. I mean, the likelihood that it was students is probably not that very high because at this point, this this is in November 16th. This has been all over the news for a couple of days at this point. And I think around that same time, we had chide-ins from Kamala Harris, from Joe Biden, from Elizabeth Warren. So it seems as if wow. this also kind of moved into the the political consciousness of some of the Democratic nominees for president. So at that point, that's when it seems as if the entire situation started to take on a life of its own and kind of became – what some people believe was the impetus for the beginning of race wars, which would ensue in Syracuse, New York. And that email, the two only two quotes I found from that email were uh, that they were happy to see swastikas on campus. And the question, why is fascism considered a bad thing? Mm -hmm. um, that almost sounds like bad trolling to me. 
But then again, yeah. you never know. Right. And and that's why I that's why I think personally that I think this was I think this came from look, we know how many people troll on 4chan on a daily basis. This could have simply been someone who picked up on this, was able and in all these email addresses are publicly available. Someone went, found the addresses and decided to start some trouble of their own. So I mean it could have been very easy, especially because this incident had become a subject of the mainstream media, it could have been very easy for someone outside of the university community to try to poke and prod to drive the discomfort and all the negative feelings around this a bit further. Right. And, well, I, and I'm not trying to minimize it because, it, you know, it could very well be the same group of people. But mm-hmm. I, I read that the email ended by asking people to help spread racism on campus. Like right. even even the white nationalist uh, isn't that blatant about well, they, they, it? Well, it don't seem like they'd say it in those terms, you know. Right, help, right. Help spread racism. It's just right. a weird way to say it, you know. It's weird. Um, but yeah, at this point, I think we we definitely started to see the the hoaxers, the trolls, and, and possibly even copycats uh, getting pulled into what had started to become, you know, a bit of a I wouldn't call it like a media circus quite, but you know, a national a national story. Um, somehow the New Zealand manifesto, uh, from the Christchurch shooter also got pulled into this story. How, how exactly did that happen? Right. So it, it was, it was believed that around the same time that these hateful emails were sent, there were also claims that someone had been distributing, um, the same manifesto that was distributed in another mass shooting. And they claimed that it was done whereby a student in the library was utilizing the airdrop feature on, feature on IELTS devices to essentially spread the manifesto around to different students. Of and that's course, where you after, can just hook into people's phones and say, like, here, take this file, right? I mean, right. Well, and I mean, but you, I mean, if your phone has that setting on an iPhone where you accept airdrops and anybody, anyone could make up like a spoof name or anything and just essentially send whatever they wanted to you if your device was discoverable within a certain area. Right. Right. So what what happened about that? I mean, it, it turned out that uh, there was there was no air to that story, right? I mean, the university came out and said, "Eh, we have no evidence of this actually happening. We got a report." Um, I feel like the university was trying to act really fast because they caught a bunch of flack for being too slow, and maybe they moved a little too fast on this one mm-hmm. because it it turned out there was nothing there. Is that is that how you understand it as well? Yeah, that's how I understand it. At least from the university standpoint, they said that. They couldn't find any student who could corroborate that they received the manifesto. More or less, the university chucked it up to a hoax, which, of course, um, wouldn't wouldn't have been far fetched at this point, given that, you know, when these given that there were so many incidents within a short period of time, it could have been completely plausible that someone was doing that. But at least the university, after investigating and up to this point, did not find any evidence or find any witnesses that were actually could actually confirm that this actually happened. So overall, um, do authorities have any leads on who may be doing uh, the the non hoaxy stuff? You know, the, the graffiti and the the swastikas in the snowbanks. I know there was an arrest involving graffiti, but that was actually somebody who was on the the pro protest side. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the only person that so far has suffered any type of reprisal from this has been the individual who's responsible for graffiti that was actually supporting the not again su movement but um, as as to this date there has been no 
real identification of who actually started this event. And also there hasn't been any confirmation that this was the source of one person or one group or many groups. So really at this point, I mean, we really don't know who started it, if this was really the act of one or many people, and also if this was seemingly a bunch of unconnected acts. So really, I mean, we're kind of still in the dark about really who is behind a lot of this. What we do know is that it caused a lot of students to be very upset um, for quite a quite a long time, um, and it's still kind of going on, yeah? Well, I mean, to, to kind of give a an inside look into what's really happening currently, and I mean, and this is kind of where I more kind of err on the side that, you know, I'm not as convinced as a lot of the students were at the time, but it seems more or less that the the fear that was purport that a lot of students felt, at least in the mainstream consciousness, at least as far as the media is concerned, has subsided. And I've also seen messages from the from the Nottingham SU group that they seem to be trying to find a way to more or less stay relevant. For example, they were hosting some type of like get together where they could study and play games and everything. So it seems as if the the movement that was started to kind of be the harbinger to a lot of systematic changes that wanted to be made is now kind of more turning into a a social collective, which there's no real problem with that. But it seems as if the initial impetus that led to the creation of the group has now subsided a bit, especially given that I think the university at this point is on break as of today, which means that students by and large won't actually be back on campus for about a month or so at this period. So really, we're just kind of looking we're looking forward to the future to see what will happen. But a lot of that initial animosity and energy that really created the movement has more or less kind of distilled at this time. Right. Well, I want to I want to get back to the initial uh, incidents, though, because I wanted to ask, what is the popular perception of what's driving this sudden upsurge? I mean, outburst. It's got to be incidents. It's got to um, be <laughs> what what both Adam, what is your opinion on on, you know, what may be driving this? But, you know, also, what is the feel around campus for why, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, we're getting like an incident a day. And then here's suddenly, another incident it's been here. three years since Trump was elected. That's not sudden. no adam what do you think (laughs) well i'll start with the general consensus and i'll kind of move on to my own opinion the general consensus which is really mainly comprised of the students of color is really that this is just another incident in a long string of attacks against students of color that really hasn't been adequately addressed by the administration so that the general consensus is that look a lot of this has happened for a while And one student was even quoted, like you said, that it's not really a matter of if some type of racial slur or something will happen. It's just a matter of when and how frequently. The general consensus is that this is just essentially business as usual for the university and that they are at least to some extent not very optimistic that much is going to come from this, specifically because they, at least up to this point, have not been successful in leading to the ouster of the current chancellor. Now, from my own perspective, though, I feel as if, you know, the movement really started in a way that was plausible. A lot of students were afraid that this could potentially be the start of maybe 
instance that could actually escalate to physical violence, mm-hmm. given that students or at least the belief of students were openly disparaging their fellow students of color in public in public spaces that were shared, which kind of gives you a feeling of unease because you have no idea who this is. Is this my neighbor? Right. These are someone? in your dorm rooms. I mean, this right. isn't just like this isn't your apartment. It's not it's 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 university sanctioned. Um, you, you know, you're assigned to your dorm. You don't choose where you live. Um, and there's people out here who who may hate you. I, this is a part of the reason I wish I knew exactly what was uh, what was on the post-its, because I know how things sometimes get twisted um, and it would make it a lot easier for, I think, the general public to come to some sort of consensus if we knew, you know, what was said. Um, although if students are saying that they feel unsafe, I think, um, you know, it's incumbent on the, the university to at least address them and hear them out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that kind of that kind of relates to where I kind of see what at least my viewpoint. And it's more around this idea that what's really driving this is not necessarily the events that have led up to the national exposure. In my opinion, what's really driven this is at least the sense of the students that there's a general lack of empathy from the administration about multicultural issues, which is understandable given the history of Syracuse University as a PWI or a predominantly white institution. But I really see, I don't know anything about that, that history. Um, Do you want to educate? I don't think our listeners probably do either. Do you want to, you want to hip us to that? Right. Well, and you know, I, I think if I just kind of give a general kind of general overview of what a PWI is, that'll kind of help at least set the groundwork for, how Syracuse has kind of been woven up to this. So just to start, um, the, the term PWI, as I said, which is a predominantly white institution, was mainly coined when we started seeing the integration of students of color into a lot of these universities that either historically did not have any students of color or, in more cases than not, actually prohibited or barred students of color from coming into these universities. I mean, we remember, you know, the, we remember the infamous governor who stood, you know, outside the steps of university who George would Wallace. not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Who did not want to uh, would not follow the directive to allow um, the schools to integrate. And I mean, that image is kind of really seared into the mind of race relations, at least as it relates to education in this country. Sure. But really, the P- a PWI campus is one that historically did not have a lot of students of color on it. And there are institutions that are con- are trying to find ways to address that history by, for example, leading multicultural and diversity initiatives that bring more students to campus. But, of course, more importantly, once they get there, finding ways to, A, integrate them into campus to make them a part of the community, and, B, providing points of reference for students who might not have actually been around any students of color, which is still a definite potential reality in in the sure. same age, even if it's not as widespread as it once was, but also trying to educate generally students who may not have come into contact with these students. And of course, maybe an even more important feature, trying to address biases or prejudices that students may have about their student of color compatriots in a way that tries to disparage a lot of the negativity and a lot of the stereotypical definitions that are assigned to certain groups, such as Asian Americans or African Americans, and do so in a way that highlights what really brings these people together rather than what separates them. Mm. 
Mm. Well, I, I noticed that it seems, and I, I would think one of the, you know, the major players or major ingredients in that mix, uh, would be fraternity culture. And I noticed that it seems like it's at the forefront of these discussions. Uh, you know, we've already discussed the basement video, but even in the newest string of incidents, four fraternity members have been suspended and Greek activities for the rest of the year were canceled. That was after a student complained that a group of frat kids, uh, some students from another college as well and non-students, uh, yelled slurs at her after a party. So is that like, is a large component of what we're dealing with here just, I mean, racist spoiled white kids run amok i mean is that is that kind of the the where it not necessarily starts and stops but is that Mm -hmm. the driver well i think i think first you know kind of as a point i think that fraternal culture at least as it relates to fraternities that have been predominantly white i mean they haven't really been exposed to a lot of these issues that some of these diversity drives try to address because a lot of fraternities really emphasize this idea of inclusion among a very small group of individuals. For example, I believe that the the fraternity that was the subject of that video, I believe at the time of the incident they had about 48 members, and I think they said about either between 20 or 28 were actually people of color. But it just goes to show you that you still have more or less uh, a majority of individuals in these fraternities who are white. Now, at least from my perspective, I am also in a fraternity, but it is a, it is a historically black fraternity. It's a fraternity among um, what is called the Divine Nine that really sprung up as a way for students of color to band together on these PWI campuses where either they had no presence or either overtly or covertly, they were still denied equal opportunities um, that were delivered to their white counterparts. And I think it, that's why it's important to make a distinction there, because even at Syracuse University, there is a prodigious presence of the Divine Nine fraternity and sororities on campus that really look to kind of be that counterbalance to the stereotypical frat culture that, you know, we see, you know, with the stereotypical, you know, tip back cap and, you know, the half cut off fraternal shirt. You know, they, they really try to be the antithesis to that in that showing that there are ways to, in a positive and healthy way, really introduce the community to areas of diversity and multiculturalism in such a way that allows students to interact with those who they may not have interacted previously. No, I think, I think that is good, but I think there's also uh, an extra ingredient in the mix in that to me, I've noticed that, you know, with the fight, uh, you know, with the, the yelling of the slurs uh, situation that I just discussed, there's also a, a component of people who don't even attend the school, uh, mm-hmm. who are getting involved and wrapped up, uh, in these incidents. So it makes me wonder about the town of Syracuse itself. Has, has there been a similar uptick in, in racial incidents in that city at large? Or I guess, you know, more aptly as, as we've been discussing, has Syracuse historically had an issue with race relations akin to what the, the students are accusing the university of having? Right. I think a good place to start to answer that question to, will be to give just a brief synopsis of really, because predominantly it really relates to African-Americans and the community at large. It's probably a good idea then to give a quick synopsis of the background of African-Americans in Syracuse. Now, really back in the 50s and 60s, the black community in Syracuse was actually very prominent. 
There were, there were a lot of business owners. There were a lot of homeowners of color. There was a strong community here that really was not typical for really what you saw at the time in terms of you know, not being very far removed from the civil rights era. So in that respect, there was a strong community. However, about, and I believe in the 1980s, there was an overpass called I-81 that was built that essentially segregated the downtown portion of the city away from what later became the university portion of that. And that essentially completely decimated the land value in the black community because, of course, nobody really wants to live under or near an overpass. And that really was kind of the harbinger for the eventual decline of the black community. And now, even today, the south side of Syracuse is infamous for the amount of crime and poverty. I think there was a report once that said that that minorities in Syracuse are one of the most impoverished groups in the entire country. So not just regionally in New York, not just in the Northeast, but the entire country. And that just kind of gives you a sense of a lot of the issues that are dealt with. I mean, we see poverty up close and personal in this city, and which is partly why I try to do as much as I can to really uplift the community to kind of combat a lot of those historical difficulties. But really, the the racial tension that we see is not so much white individuals really going against black individuals. It's more what's kind of more endemic at this day and age and, of course, stems back to the 50s and 60s, which is a lot of tension between the local police department and people of color, namely because there is at least a perception that people of color are treated as essentially second-class citizens by the police force. And there was even, in response to that, there was actually a citizen review board, which actually reviews complaints that citizens who come into contact with the police make. And they actually investigate instances of these to determine, for example, if an officer used excessive force, if they did something that they weren't supposed to do. And that really kind of arose out of this really just paranoia that, um, individuals of color just didn't have the ability to adequately protect themselves and wanted to find a way to kind of shed light on what they believed to be some of the improprieties of injustice that they suffered at the hands of the local police. Right. And we just saw we had. Well, I say just I just saw videos from three, four years back of a Bullitt County, Kentucky uh, police chief or fire chief. Um, and there was a, some sort of traffic accident on the highway and he's helping this guy out and he's like, Hey, I'll get my guys to come change your tire. We'll get you out of here. We'll save you a bill. And the other people that were involved in the accident were black. Mm. And he, he goes to the guy and he's like, I need your license and registration. Um, you know, just hassles him real hard and then sends him on his way. And the deputy or the officer who was on the case had his uh, his camera on, his body cam on, mm-hmm. and caught this guy saying, "We don't want these n words in our in our community. Like we're not oh. going to have these n words here." The other guy, the white guy, they they took to the fire station to hang out while the police changed his tire. You know, Jeez. the the black guy, they checked his fucking registration and his insurance. And and he told the officer, you know, this is the fire chief, told the officer, like, we don't want these people here. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who 
who think that we're, you know, we're far beyond racism and, you know, it's not institutionalized and, oh, no way could our, you know, there's black people on the police force. There's no way it could be, you know, racist. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, man, that's Bullet County, Kentucky. Granted, it's the sticks. But, uh, you know, well, actually, I think that's why I think that's why, you know, what Adam just said is so important is, is that I also think there's a tendency to always think that those incidents are happening in Bullitt County, Kentucky and mm. in mm. the farthest reaches of Alabama and Mississippi. And when you find out that, oh, no, it's there's things wrong up in Syracuse, New York as well. You don't have to be an ex-Confederate state to have stuff like this going on. You know, right. I think it's important for people to realize, you know, just how widespread and pervasive the problem can be. Mm. Right. And, you know, and I think it's also important. And I mean, I've really tried to press this in you know, my community, because I feel as if the only way that we're going to really move past a lot of this history that is very hurtful, very painful, is we have to be able to find a way to meet at a common place that allows us to discuss these issues. And I mean, and that's on, that's honestly why that Citizen Review Board just described why I have some issues with it is because it more or less seems to be a forum to essentially vindicate somebody who feels that they were wronged, but not is so done in a way that really affords officers any real way to not just be essentially the bad guy. And I mean, and I, I definitely understand that this stuff does happen around the country, but I don't think the response is to essentially set up an ad hoc tribunal that is mm. really hell bent on doling out well, they can't do, they can't, they can't punish, but doling out negative publicity about officers. I mean, there's no way that we're going to begin to make any inlets into rebuilding this relationship and making it what we want it to be. If we're essentially just going to set up our own process and say, huh, yep, we found out you did it. You're wrong. You know, you're racist. Like we, we have to find a way to so where past it. Where is that middle ground though? Like I feel like. Without accountability, like so that police chief uh, apologized. He also said some some racist ass shit to the Asian reporter. He kept telling her, like, do you speak English? Am, am I speaking English? You know, I'm speaking English. Anyway, you know, he apologized and I think he got fired. But if you know, where is the middle ground between a tribunal um, and still having some sort of accountability, you know, some sort of punishment, some sort of, you know, accountability like right. When well, you say middle ground, what do you mean? Right. Well, when I say middle ground is we have to be able to have these conversations jointly, which means that when we have these things happen, we have to have a forum that allows us to effectively talk about what happened. You know, and I kind of think of something synonymous to what happened after Rwanda, the the um, the gotcha cha um, hearings that they had, which they they weren't about punishment necessarily. The individuals stood trial per se, but it was more the victims had the opportunity to tell these individuals who they may have seen hack their family members to death to tell them how this impacted them. So really, when I say middle ground, I'm talking about restorative justice, finding a way to address these issues face to face instead of having, for example, the the police department has their own internal review process. Now the citizens have their own internal review process. And so essentially, if I find one thing and you find the other thing, we're at an impasse because we 
haven't yeah. actually addressed the issue. We've just found a way to assign an account blame in a way that makes us feel better that we feel as if the justice we want is happening when in fact we are only getting justice in silos, which is not just justice. It's just actually echoes in another echo chamber that doesn't allow us to get past the biases in history to truly build something sustainable to allow us to move forward. It's right. not to say that to ignore these things, but it's more or less to say that we got to find a way to come together and move forward or we're just going to continue to be in the same rut. And, of course, these issues will continue to happen in Syracuse, New York and Houston, Texas and Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, it's there has to be an end to it. And the only way you put an end to it is to get to the table and start talking about these issues. Right. I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head. You kind of remove the humanity from the process where where if you're standing face to face, you see the pain in your fellow humans eyes. That's really hard to ignore. I don't care how cold and racist you are. Right. Um, you know, it takes me back to my my superhero, my my real real life superhero, Daryl Davis, you know, who was who was able to gather the KKK robes of you know hundreds of members throughout his life. Right, right, um, just yeah. just by showing up, being present and and acknowledging their humanity, even in the face of their abhorrent racism. And that's not to say that we're all as strong as Daryl Davis, because yeah. how how can you be? You know, right. it's like saying we're all Superman. We're not. Right. Um, but to me, there is, you know, that's 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 the that's restorative. That's right. healing. Um, right. That's that's unity, if you will. Um, so I, I'm right there on the same page with you, man. Right. Yeah. And, it, and again, I mean, it's just so important that, you know, we not allow the the pain of yesterday to define the reality of tomorrow, because, I mean, it's easy to live in cynical pain and violence. I mean, it's, it's easy to be hateful and to just completely look at someone who has hurt you in the past and just always think that this person is never going to change. This group is never going to change. But I mean, we can sit there and do that or we can at least try to do something different that may net a better result that we could have never imagined. So Adam, I wanted to, I wanted to talk a bit about the protests, um, themselves. Uh, so, so basically what happened is, you know, we had the not again SU movement. We had the sit in and everything. And eventually the students who staged the sit in, uh, came up with a list of 19 demands and ultimately were able to secure Syracuse Chancellor Kent Siverud's signature on a document where the university agrees to meet those demands, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite as straightforward as all that. Can you describe the process that led to that agreement? Right. So, I mean, initially the, the demands were drafted by the students and they delivered to the administration. The administration was given a deadline that they had to meet in order to consider the demands accepted um, between that time period, which is about a week, they gave 10 days. They gave them to sign the demands in that time period. There was the chancellor had a actual open forum with some students um, during that time period to answer questions. There was also then a more public town hall that was actually held in the chapel that we have here on campus. And those were really the opportunities to kind of get the feedback from the students to really understand where the administration can start to address uh, some of those instances. Now, the the only issue with some of that was that some of the demands that the students made were not necessarily doable by the chancellor in his own veracity because he is not necessarily the end-all, be-all. He's not an emperor. He's not a king. He's answerable to 
the board of trustees, which meant that if there were things that had to be changed really at the highest level, some of those things were going to have to receive approval by the board of trustees before the chancellor could actually accept them, which that actually carried the signing of the demands past the deadline. They, they missed the deadline, I believe, by about uh, two or three hours. He signed it at about 2 a.m. on uh, one morning. He then sent out an email about it, giving the demands in a memorandum. But subsequent to that, um, the students rejected the acceptance of his signature because it was past the deadline. Mm. Wow. Because he was well, like I, three hours past the deadline. Right, yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, just to kind of give our listeners an idea of, of what was going on, I think there were um, there were demands where basically the students were asking for a, a the ability for students and faculty to come together and create a curriculum that, uh, you know, in their words, quote, accurately address diversity issues in the 21st century and how they are influenced by history. Um, I think they also wanted to do things like consolidate all the multicultural offices and build actually a dedicated uh, multicultural building where all of those offices could be housed. But then to your point, there was one that was like uh, create an open forum for students to share their student experience and express the expectations of their university to the board of trustees. And the chancellor was like, well, you know, I, I, I can't do that. I can I can suggest it to the board of trustees. Yeah, he, and he changed he had it. Amended read, it. The chancellor will strongly urge the board of trustees to create an open forum for students to share their student experience. And and uh, you know that's that's some wiggle room there. But gosh, uh, like you said, he's not a king. He's not an emperor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if his hands are tied. There are two in particular that I would I would really like to talk about, and one of them would be uh, uh, I think it's number six here. It says. Uh, a housing portal such as My College Roomy or RoomSync should be implemented as an option in the roommate selection process to allow future residents to choose a roommate based on mutual interests and identities, as well as the expansion and promotion of multicultural learning communities to more residence halls on campus, including upper, upper division and mixed population communities. And, and let me and, just say, I saw a video of uh, the early uh, – protesters and they had like an idea board on the wall and that started with the language based on race um what they were and and it it morphed and changed i'm sure as time went on to to say identities rather than race but what these guys are asking for is to check a box that says i want to room with black people right or i want to room with trans people or i want to room with white people you know as as a white guy and and to me, this is like the total opposite side of the road that that we should be rolling down. I mean, am, am I wrong? I, are are white people so scary that that you can't room with white folks? Or it, 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 what? What? I'm flabbergasted. I can't even imagine how a group of people protesting racism would come to the the idea that they should be able to self-segregate. Right. And, you know, this is really where the rubber hit the road for me and really started to make me question really some of the competencies of the movement, because you, I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head. You can't on one hand expound that you want more diversity, you want more multicultural inclusion, but then on the other hand say, well, I want all that stuff, but I also want to essentially be able to room with someone that I feel comfortable with. 
if the idea is that we're trying to break down borders that prevent us from understanding each other, especially if we don't come from backgrounds that have exposed us to individuals who come from diverse backgrounds, how in the hell are we going to do that if we are going to start to self-select and essentially ask the university to sponsor what, at least in my eyes, is a pseudo-apartheid in room selections – I mean, that, that just completely undermines what you're trying to accomplish. And it just seemed that I cannot imagine. And honestly, I know that you said, well, it went from race to identity. Identity is just the placeholder for race. I mean, it's it, it's interchangeable how people see it, because I really don't. How do you identify? You ask someone how they identify a person of color. They're probably going to say, oh, I identify as African-American. So, I mean, honestly, that was kind of their way of kind of slipping it under the rug a bit. But I mean, of course, not realizing that people are going to read this, that saying identities is not necessarily just going to completely disparage the connotation that you mean you want to live with somebody who is of a race of your choosing. And I mean, to me, especially as someone who has made civil rights and diversity really a tenet of everything I do, for me, that was really a slap in the face to see that, mm. you know, you've expounded this much about wanting to have really this call to arms about multiculturalism, but then you want to kind of hold the keys to the kingdom insofar as you're able to then select who you're room with. I mean, that just completely took me by surprise and really started me make started to make me question some of the motivations of the movement. Mm. Well, I really thought it was interesting because that is the and identities portion is is one of the parts that, you know, the chancellor amended like he struck right. that. Right. And I think and I think he did it because he didn't have a choice, because I'm almost certain that there's laws on the books, you know, right. like civil rights law, anti-discrimination law that say that you cannot do that. And, <laughs> and and I think I think that that stems um, from the the. Yeah, you know, whatever you want to call it, popular ideas, popular narrative or whatever that's that's kind of happening in the, um, you know, the the diversity and multicultural slash critical studies uh, uh, culture that it's not incumbent upon people of color to, uh, you know, take up the fight against racism and they shouldn't have to, uh, you know, uh, uh go through their own emotional labor and whatnot to teach white people, you know, how to do this. They should have a place where they're safe to themselves to be able to, you know, not have to fight that struggle every day. But at the same time, like, you know, where, where I can understand that argument and I, and I can understand um, how we should all be more aware and, and understanding that that is something that happens every day. At the same time, you can't let, the, the the horse run away with the cart to the extent where you start advocating for the very policies that we were trying to eradicate 50 years ago. I mean, the, uh, George Wallace, who we brought up earlier, would absolutely have loved for students yeah, to be able to choose their roommates hey, based on identity. Mean my son can come and choose only white roommates. Hey, problem solved. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's sometimes we just get we get so carried away that that we don't even realize the road that we're walking down at that point. Right. And, you know, and I think this was really more indicative of, I think, really the problem that you have when you start a movement with anger. Anger is a valid emotion. It is a composite of a lot of different feelings. But as we've seen, look at the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, that movement started really at a lot of out of a lot of anger, a lot of pain about what the black community was going through. And really, since then, it's pretty much fizzled out because 
your 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 rallying cry cannot simply be anger because anger dissipates. Anger goes away as time goes on because not time doesn't necessarily heal all, but time puts this stuff out of memory. And you have to have something more than being angry at something or someone in order to sustain a movement such that you can actually make the change you want to see. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I want to I want to be clear, like th- this wasn't denied because of the chancellor's changes. You say this this was denied because he didn't meet the deadline. Well, it was a compositive, too. I mean, it was actually kind of hard to decipher, which was more the reason. I think more the reason was that because the students believed that and they even said it in their statement that essentially this the chancellor was stalling and that he wasn't taking this seriously. And so they said that not only do we reject it because it was late, we also reject any revisions whatsoever to the document. So essentially they were saying, look, either it's our way or the highway. See, that that just totally flabbergasts me because what I see here is an incredible amount of effort from the chancellor going above and beyond. Um, I mean, they're, they're talking about clarifying, you know, hate speech rules. They're talking about buildings and creating multicultural learning centers. And he says yes. And he says yes over and over and over. He even says yes to the housing portal. Like, yes. Uh, you know, we'll give you an option to allow you to choose roommates based on mutual interests. Oh, no, he actually, he goes, he goes much further than that. Actually, there, there's a, a point in there, and, and, and the original request by the students was make the diversity training status of tenured professors readily available through this public website. And, and they had had a, you know, a website where they wanted that to happen. Well, the chancellor made a revision. That uh, changed the language to, uh, you know, it says available through this public website. He said up to the extent permitted by law, because obviously there is going to be like privacy right. laws when we're talking about stuff like that. Right. But he added and make the completion of the required diversity and inclusion training part of the requirements for tenure. Right. For- so you can't you can't adjust. You can't force a tenured professor to 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 do diversity training, I don't think. But you can amend the rules to make incoming professors who are applying for tenure get the training and i i think that's where he was going with that right right and, and that's that's really that's exactly where he was going and it, it i i was just completely outraged that not only were they getting the diversity training but the chancellor which i think it had to be he listened to the students and said well i hear what they want but maybe this is going to get them further he voluntarily adds this provision that essentially makes diversity training a requirement before a professor can be tenured and they still reject it outright. I mean, and again, to kind of link this to what I said before about when the rubber hit the road for me, not only was it with the identity portion, but rejecting something that gave you more than you asked for it it at this point seemed as if this more became about really trying to seize the spotlight and appear to be strong rather than get what you want. If your point, if this document, these 19 demands were the coalescence of everything that had happened prior to this movement being formed and the movement was able to get what it wanted, but then you summarily (laughs) reject it because it wasn't on time and because there were three revisions made, one of which was actually more than you asked for. 
It's yeah. crazy. It makes you wonder. I mean, it makes me wonder. And I'm paranoid. You know, theory makes fun of me all the time because I'm always going like, oh, what was the real reason behind this? It's almost like like they put poison pills in here because they didn't want this thing to go through. I mean, I can't imagine. They got a million, a, a minimum of a million dollars for the creation of a unified required curriculum that educates the campus on diversity issues, specifically anti-racism, and you turn it down. Like that one demand, I think if I was in the, I mean, I don't know, I'm not black, you know, I'm not affected like they are, but I feel like I'd have been like, hell yeah, give it to me. Let's go. Let's go. But it didn't, it didn't just stop there. Right. I mean, they didn't, they didn't just say, okay, we're, we're going to, we're going to turn you down um, and move on because now they're, they're asking for his job. Right. Right. And, and, and that's also where, and I hate to I hate to use this word or phraseology, but it seems more or less that this transition from getting these 19 demands, it turned into a witch hunt because this guy who has sat with the students, who's listened to them, who's developed and gone over this. And I'm sure probably had many undisclosed late night meetings with the board of trustees who are oh, probably yeah. all over the country and all over the world to get authorization to get this through. And then to essentially say, no, we don't want it because it wasn't on time and we want to accept everything as is. I mean, it it just really just perplexes me. And to kind of add another dimension, there was also a video of a speech that was given about the demands and whatnot. And it really kind of added – I'm going to kind of go on the conspiracy part here because if you look at the video, the guy speaking just so happens to have this large afro – already has merchandise saying not again SU on it. I mean, it was just to me a performance. You and you had two people who were flanking. You said, like they people. already had shirts and stuff. Yeah, they already had merchandise. They had merchandise. They and then you had two students who were flanking the speaker who essentially they were just nodding their heads and clapping whenever the guy talked. I mean, it felt I mean I've seen Nation of Islam speeches that went like that, where essentially just have two guys behind you that their only job is to essentially agree and clap with everything that you say. I mean, it's warmers. Yeah, it just for me really started to bring a level of of a lack of authenticity to the movement because the stereotypical guy with the huge afro that's supposed to say black power to everybody, but then further. Just the the entire organization of it. I mean, at that point, it felt more like these kids wanted to get spotlight and wanted to kind of self-aggrandize themselves. Not so much they wanted to actually do what was necessary to achieve these demands, which they did, but were still rejected summarily by them. You you say that, and I can't help but wonder if some some powerful organizer out there wanted this man's job and 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 herded this group. To, to, to remove him from office, to remove him from power. I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine that, that asking for him to be removed is the next step. You know, a- add to your demands, something. But, but well, really, gonna, this, gonna... how is removing him from his job going to help any of these things? No, you have a point, but I mean, I, I guess what I would say is something that, you know, I've said to you in private about this is I think, I think that you do have you do have the elements of what you're talking about, right? You do have a a, a driving force um, that is pushing uh, pushing these protests 
up over the top, right? So, I mean, I think you have the honest... The force of the media, for sure. Well, the force case. of the media, for sure. But, I mean, I think you have honest students who, you know, obviously care about the problems that they're experiencing at Syracuse and, and right. you know, want to see them addressed and all that good no stuff. Question. But I think there is also this this not only uh, media thing, but, like, in, in academia, like this this cultural thing that says that every single protest has to go above and beyond the scope of what it's even asking for. It has to address all the the, the systemic uh, and institutional, you know, racism and, and patriarchy and problems that we're seeing across the well, nation, like all you, but, at one bank. But and how is so Sebi to the point to... where they blind themselves to, you know, here they're getting what they want, but it's, it's not enough because there's all these other things that have to be rectified, justified. And when you have that many people who are, are – are pushing and saying that, you know, this is what should happen. This is something that needs to happen and, and you have to do this. Well, you, now you're putting a whole lot of pressure on 19, 20, 21 year old kids. And now all of a sudden they're thrust into the media spotlight and it's kind of their time to shine. And before you know it, that thing gets away from you, you know? I, I just can't imagine how, how, how Sevy Rude gets to be the, you know, the face of this and, and pulling him out is somehow a solution to any of the things you've been fighting for. What is the next guy that comes in going to sign this 19, this list of 19 demands? I mean, is that what they're hoping for? What? I just can't see an end game and it makes me scratch my head and it throws me into a tailspin where I'm just hopeless and I have no answers. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It makes me want to ask, I, I want to ask Adam, at least in your opinion, and I understand that you don't, you know, speak for the not again SU movement or, you know, anybody but yourself. In your opinion, where is Syracuse taking rightly deserved criticism and where have the protesters like missed the mark? Like in you know what I'm saying? In general, like like where has has Syracuse been messing up for, for quite some time and where are the protesters overreaching? Like where how do you see that? You know, how I see it is I really see it as what more can the university do? And I think an important and to really kind of really support this assertion and what's really not been talked about prior to any of these protests happening, probably about a year ago, the university voluntarily installed at the at the well, what the time an interim director for chief diversity officer. And this individual who I actually know, who's actually funny enough, a member of my fraternity is was charged with doing everything possible to really highlight and push diversity initiatives at, at the university. In addition, um, this individual, he also sent out very lengthy emails that detailed in excruciating instances what was being done about diversity initiatives, what was on the forefront, what they were looking for feedback from from students. And it never seemed that at any time, and I mean, I, I even admit, I, I didn't read all of them point for point, and I can imagine a lot of students didn't read them point for point. But it, it more just kind of highlights that it wasn't as if this was just a moment of a deer in the headlights moment for the university. They, given the history of the makeup of the campus racially, they've been taking steps to try to mitigate a lot of the issues that were really hurting and calling for change by a lot of students of color. But never once did I ever hear anyone say, oh, well, you know, what this, what the teacher diversity officer said was not right, or, oh no, he needs to do this or that. There was never truly 
a public rebuff or any type of public recognition by the students of what initiative the university was doing to address these issues. So really what the university could have done better, if you want to look at it from, you know, maybe an objective standpoint, sure, maybe they could have released information earlier. But as we discussed, when they jumped on it and released information immediately about the manifesto, they did it really out of a reactionary standpoint. So the question is, do we want what happened quickly without any real veracity or vetting of the situation? Or do we want to be able to collect the facts, figure out what happened, and then deliver a detailed report to the student body? I mean, I would really support the latter if there is not at least some instance of physical violence that was the cause or lead up to the event. Right. Of some sort of pressing imminent danger, um, you know, that that makes it uh, imminent. You know, you, you have to tell people now. <laughs> and, and I don't and, and I don't know what was on those those post-its. We don't we none of no one knows. They didn't say. So we don't know if danger was imminent or not. Maybe maybe right. it was, you know, maybe they screwed up and they should have said something earlier. But it, it, maybe not. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> and, you know, and even to kind of highlight something else, because I know that we talked about earlier about really the feel of students. I mean, in response to this and without knowing what was on those post-its and whatnot, the university um, increased exponentially the amount of. Um, public safety officers all around campus. I mean, I saw walking to class officers all over the place, both of the university and from the local PD. And of course, there was also the New York State sent in their own race task force team who did. I don't have no idea what they do, but they came in and did something. I think at one time the FBI got involved. So you had Adam, Adam, I got to I got to ask you as a black guy. Does more police on campus make you feel more safe or less safe? Of course it doesn't. <laughs> it, it, you know, it doesn't make me feel more safe, but at the same time, it, you know, it brings, it shows that they're trying to do something. Now, of course, I was never in fear for my life. I was never in fear I was going to be the victim of a hate crime or anything. But yeah, more police doesn't necessarily mean more safety, but if you but it does show a willingness to respond. Exactly. It shows you're willing to do something. And I mean, what? Would, would, would you just want them to do lip service, which is what you disparage them from doing in the past, to simply say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we're handling it. Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. But essentially, you want them to do this, and then you want them to do that. But you don't want them to do that, but you want them to do this. It seems as if, what do you want them to do? Either you want lip service, you want a physical presence, you got to figure out what you want. And well, and they did, and they and they got it, and they turned it down. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back to the head scratcher. And then it goes to like, what do you really want? And that's when I more or less kind of, you know, I felt, look, this movement started off legitimate as a true response to a series of racially motivated events that put the local community on edge, rightfully so. But then really devolved into, well, you know what? Let's try to get this guy's job. And honestly, look at any coup de getat anywhere in the world. I mean, look at the Arab Spring. All those regimes were toppled, but nothing has changed. Egypt is just as bad off as it was before they ousted Mubarak. Um, Jordan is no better off. I mean, simply removing the top does nothing to the middle and the bottom. You have to start bottom up to actually start to implement changes to the system that are going to be long-lasting and give you the true change that is 
truly going to transform the nature and operation and appearance of the system. Simply knocking out the top does nothing but actually solidify the middle because Church. if you come in as a new guy, you want to have people around who know what's going on, and those people may actually be part of the problem. So what? essentially, by ousting the top and not dealing with the middle or bottom, you are actually potentially just carrying over the problems to another administration. Yeah, Adam, I think- Adam, I have to I have to mention that we did our episode on impeachment last time. So I have to say, like, like hatred, these these kind of things, they're they're a people problem. And and I think the best way that that we have to fix people is is with other people like I, I, I strongly believe that. I think the power, you know, people are powerful. Words are powerful. Uh, uh, facial, facial gestures, you know, are powerful. And, and that's what we use, man. I, I, I strongly, I strongly believe that. I, you know, taking this guy's job, not, not gonna do anything, man. Um, bunking, well, bunking think- together with other, with other people that look like you, not, not really gonna help, man. It might help you, you know, maybe if you're, you know, if you're scared, it might help you feel more comfortable as you go to school. And hey, maybe that's what we as a society decide is important. I don't know, man. But, I don't but you know. know what? And I want to kind of make a point about comfort. Look, when Martin Luther King led the, you know, led the, you know, the, the, you know, the bus boycotts and eventually led the Salem walk, that wasn't comfortable. To sure. really push through these issues is not comfortable. So for you to demand comfort, to try to deal with uncomfortable issues is really honestly just a complete abashment to the generations of people, some who have given their lives to make the entire country better, both from a social and political standpoint. For them to say we want to be more comfortable to deal with uncomfortable issues is just an oxymoron of the highest order. Uh, yeah. Uh. So I also wanted to ask you, what did you think about, you know, I, I haven't really been, um, what do you call it? Like on the receiving end of it. So what did you think about the, the media's handling of the situation? I, I think at one point the governor of New York, uh, was actually also criticizing the chancellor, but you know, like you said earlier, it got, uh, Kamala Harris commented on it. Uh, Joe Biden, I think there were other candidates. What is it like? You know, living in a town that is at the epicenter of like one of those media shitstorms that we. What see are the chances right that the media drummed this thing up with all these kids in the first place? Anyway, no. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It's surreal, and I mean, I can truly see why there are some out there who just can't stomach the mainstream media because it's instances like this where you take a story that you're looking from the outside in and you drum it up to be, like I said, that. The, the race wars were going to ensue in Syracuse, New York. I mean, and even if you, for example, the story that I feel did the most disservice to this entire thing was the story released by the New York Times. And the headline essentially said, you know, racial slurs in the 15 days that shook Syracuse. I mean, as if this was some type of monumental happening. Was this something that was serious? Yes. But this was not something that deserved some type of national rebuff or national response. I mean, it was a group of kids staging a sit-in in an air-conditioned, heated new building with food and water. This was not this was not like a 
not like a hurricane or a tornado or some natural disaster that swept the city. Let me this, let me give they give the listeners a quote from this article. Uh, this is the tipping point, said Montanique McAaron, uh, a black graduate student. These protests have made people more aware of the climate the students of color have to go through. For a lot of students, this place is heaven, but for students of color, it's hell. It's hell. It's hell. I mean, is that, am I wrong in thinking that's, that's crazy? I, I, I mean, you'd think, I, I, I don't know, man. I can't imagine that getting slurs yelled at you even is, is hell. I it just, I don't know, man. I mean, look, is it, I mean, look, I've been, I've been called racial slurs before. Is it unsettling? Yes. But at the same time, I know that I, I am the benefit of living in a time where I don't have to worry as much that a racial slur will be accompanied by violence, which is the impetus for the N-word, the impetus for a lot of words that have been used in derogatory means. They were followed by violence, and they were used to delineate a person as essentially being less than human. Sure. I just don't get the same feel today. And it also make me, makes me question how we really use words such as racism. What is our motivation behind it? Is it to draw attention to the behavior that we feel is not acceptable? Or is it actually doing what the words do, which is dehumanize? Are we using them to essentially vilify somebody who we believe is guilty of committing this crime of racism to such an extent that they should be publicly shamed for it. And I really feel as if the latter is becoming the norm. And that's really, really worrying for me. Mm. It kind of um, kind of weakens, weakens the term itself. Right. Because, I mean, if you essentially use it as a placeholder for behavior that is unbefitting to you, I mean, I feel as if what this is setting us up for, I mean, it seems as if we are kind of woke, walking into a quote unquote woke racism culture where mm. anything that is done that is potentially upsetting in a racial format is then taken and plastered as some type of harbinger for a race war. Right. right. Well, uh, so, so where do things, uh, you know, I guess to, to kind of, Wrap it up, I guess. Uh, where where do things stand now uh, at Syracuse, and and what do you think? Like in your opinion, uh, what's kind of the way forward here? Like where are we heading from here? Right, and I think well to say where we are currently, we actually received a campus wide email yesterday, and I'm just going to kind of read a portion of it to kind of give you a sense of how the board of trustees, which is really the ultimate and all and BLV University has to feel about this. And this is essentially what they said. They said, in recent weeks, we've heard from many students, faculty, staff, alumni, parents from our Syracuse University community. Um, we are saddened by the pain and fear that individuals have experienced on our campus due to hateful and racist acts. We're deeply committed to ensuring Syracuse University is a place where all individuals are and feel safe, bad and respected. My fellow trustees and I have been in deliberate conversations at our consideration of how the board can best support the university community. That is why I am reaching out today to announce the formation of an independent advisory panel that will work in conjunction with the newly formed Board of Trustees Special Committee on University Climate, Diversity, and Inclusion to assess and provide recommendations regarding programs, policies, and initiatives designed to foster and strengthen diversity, inclusion at Syracuse University. And to kind of read in between the lines, we're not firing the chancellor, first and foremost. 
Secondly, we're not going to meet with you every semester. We're going to establish a committee that will report back to us about what's happening. But essentially, they're saying, look, it ends here. We're going to set up we're going to set up these committees to talk about these issues, to give you an outlet. But we're not firing the chancellor and we are not going to essentially have an open forum with you every semester about your experience. We're going to have a committee that's going to do that for us. And the demands are not met, right? The 19 demands are now dropped? No, they're not. And actually, what's happened is the university has already began to move forward on the demand. So essentially, any of the hubris that we hear from here from in on out about not accepting the demands, demanding the chancellor's firing, at that point, the Board of Trustees has already moved on. They said, look, this is what we're doing. We're establishing this committee. We're going through with these demands. And honestly, I feel like this is the best possible outcome for this movement that, in my opinion, started to deteriorate and become a bit disingenuous towards the end once the national attention started setting in. Because they, the university says, OK, you don't want to accept them. OK, we're moving on. We tried. We're not going to do anything. Yeah, but, we'll do it even if you don't accept it. Right. But so they're doing it now. Because they feel as if these are actual genuine issues, the Board of Trustees is not going to be held hostage by a group of students. It's not going to happen. They are going to find a way to move forward to address these things in a way that makes things better. But they're not going to simply say, OK, the only way we can do this is by essentially giving you the chancellor's head. And then right. we'll kind of call it square and even Stevens. Right. I'm surprised they're going through with with all the demands that that surprises me. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm pleased. I think it's you know, it shows a, a willingness uh, on their part to to address what students see as problems. So, right. you know, good for them. Good for them. Well, Adam, uh, you know, thank you for for coming on today and kind of straightening us out on everything that's going on up in Syracuse. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's It's been Absolutely wonderful to talk to you, man. Yeah, guys, thank you very much. I just want to say, you know, I mean, I love everything you guys do. And I mean, I think that you really bring a much needed voice of sensibility and really commonality to issues that just seem to plague all of us all over the country. And to have a place where we can really talk about these in a way that is accessible to every person, no matter their level of education, their background is truly wonderful. And, you know, I really love the work you guys do. And I, Really will support and hope it even gets better from here on out. Oh, you made me blush. I, I do have one last question for you though. Um, what, what do you what do you think about Taylor Swift? Uh, what do I think about what don't I think about Taylor Swift? <laughs> I told you I told you I'm not doing these in segments no more. Hey y'all, this is Beanzo, beloved star of the critically acclaimed show The Bean Pod. I want to thank all of you for taking a moment to check out my side project, The Sense and Theory Podcast. Remember, if you need an extra dose of truth and integrity between shows, you can find all the links to contact my social media team at senseandtheorypodcast.com. You can also join the movement sweeping the nation by donating five bucks a month and becoming an official Beanzo buddy at patreon.com slash senseandtheory. And finally, don't forget that my segments normally start somewhere between 55 minutes or an hour in. So you can always just skip ahead to the best part. This is your gracious host, Beanzo, signing off.